Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Hello, I'm Molly McGrath, I am the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest on Tales from the Leeds Library is author Chris Nixon. Having grown up in Leeds, Chris spent the early part of his career as a musician in the UK and then as a music journalist in Seattle, writing for NPR, amongst other publications. After 30 years in the US, Chris moved back to the UK in 2005. His first novel, The Broken Token, was published in 2010, and since then he has published a prolific number of novels in the historical fiction genre, many of which are set in and around Leeds, 23 in fact. His latest novel, Brass Lives, which is part of the Inspector Tom Harper series, was published in July of this year. Alongside historical fiction, Chris has also written several plays, one of which, New Brigade Blues, was commissioned by Lee's Jazz Fest and performed to the accompaniment of a live jazz quintet. Chris is also currently the first writer-in-residence for Abney House Museum. Hello, Chris. Thank Hello. you very much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, so firstly, before we start talking about your, your novels, I want to talk to you about music um, and you're a musician and a music journalist and played in bands for a long time. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, your relationship to music over the years and the music scene in Seattle as you experienced it? Well, music's been a, a big part of my life since I was 13, really. Mm. And my dad had been a jazz pianist in Leeds back in mm. the 30s. Um, and at some point, and I know this is true, but I don't know any of the details on it. At one point, he played piano once with Nat King Cole, who was no mean pianist himself. Wow. So. In Leeds? <clears throat> I have no idea where it happened. I don't think so. Mm. But um, he died, before, uh, and I never did get the details from him. I actually just, comp- I, I wrote a short story, mm-hmm. a fantasy from just based on that single fact. Um, so I played in bands in Leeds, not that we did much or anything like that. Um, after I moved to the States, I was in Cincinnati for 10 years and I was in a couple of bands there and actually met the guy who's my oldest friend who turns out to be a superb writer himself. He's one numerous awards for his short stories and his plays, numerous grants from the state of Ohio, and he's got a novel coming out in October called Tiki Man. Um, His name's Thomas M. Atkinson, to give him a plug, because he deserves it. (laughs) He's a much better writer than I will ever be. And like I say, we've we've known each other for getting on 40 years now, so it's... Yeah, uh, and you met through music? Yeah, yeah. I was... (laughs) teaching evening classes in creative writing through um, Cincinnati Cincinnati Recreation Commission. One of my students had a party, so I went there with my girlfriend. And she emerged from the kitchen and said, is this guy in here you've got to meet? Mm -hmm. And that was Tom, and we hit it off, and 
we still have all yeah. these years later. He's still in Cincinnati. I moved around, but yeah. yeah. So it's so interesting how uh, so much creative work does come from these random kind of uh, coincidences. It's like you know, oh. serendipitous meetings and then you discover someone who changes your life and then suddenly you have a whole career out of it. Exactly. And, um, <clears throat> so in 86, I moved to Seattle. And at that point, the music scene there was sort of bubbling under. It was still, um, and it came to the fore more in... 88, 89. I'd done a bit of music journalism in Cincinnati, but it was really 93 that I started properly. Um, I'd been playing in a couple of bands in Seattle, not doing it, just here and there, some of the venues that, you know, the bigger bands played as well, clubs. And then I was playing solo and just doing that kind of stuff, and I just decided to quit and write about music instead. Yeah. And that turned into a whole career. Um, I was doing a full raft of journalism and I was writing these quickie unauthorized bios. Um, I had a mortgage to pay. I had a young child. So the money was welcome. Mm. But there were years there when I actually made a really good living from writing, which is still something that stuns me. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about your 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 biographies actually, because you said that they were kind of they were to to make a quick buck uh, to yeah. bring the money in. Um, and I'm wondering what it, the difference is writing for a deadline when you've got to kind of reach a word limit, or, <laughs> as opposed to I, I mean, I, I suppose music journalism is 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 like that as well, yeah, as opposed yeah. to writing um, novels and writing creatively. Well, the uh, the books. A lot of these were written before you could really get information on the internet. You know, 1994, forget it. There was no internet, realistically. So it was a case of going down to the public library, microfilm, microfiche, magazines, and photocopying articles, and, and just taking it from that. There, there were no interviews. It was all cut and paste. So you had to be aware of fair use laws. And... You get a month to research and write a fifty thousand word book. Wow! So the journalism was actually a really good grounding for that because you were working with deadlines and word counts. You learned how to split up your day. Uh, I, I've got to do X number of words today and stuff like that, just to compartmentalize your days. And end up spending more time on the legal review than on any edit. Um, Anything vaguely scurrilous did not pass. <laughs> and that was fine. It, you know, it paid well. Um, mm. So I, I think there was one year I did six books plus a whole lot of journalism. Wow. Um, you have working. to be so disciplined, I imagine. To, yeah. To oh, yeah, yeah. It turned that. out I could do that. Yeah. I was also a lot younger then and had more energy. <laughs> more motivation as well, I guess, if they, if they paid well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, around this time, you wrote um, an NPR guide to world music. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? Well, I've been doing stuff for National Public Radio, which is, it's the equivalent of, uh, of Radio 4 over here, pretty mm. much. I've done, done stuff for five years for the local NPR station. Uh, every other week, I would go in and review a record, and, and we'd 
recorder. And this was in the days, this was pre-digital. This was when you had to slice the, the tape um, to do the edits. Wow. Um, and then Amazon started up when I was in Seattle. The guy who'd been my editor at the local music paper was headhunted by them to head up their music section. He had me doing reviews for them, which was great because it was all older catalog reviews and paid reasonably and paid quickly. I mean, you know, you don't even need to listen to an old Beatles album to review it. Not when you're my age. <laughs> um, and then National NPR came and asked me to start doing stuff with them. I had a really good editor there, put me through my paces. And I did stuff for National NPR drive time for eight years. Even after I moved back here, I would go down to London or go into Sheffield to record. Um, and that was great because I could get stuff that people weren't aware of on the radio. My, I was dealing far more with world and roots music by then, mm. um, stuff that people generally don't know. So I, I had this opportunity and I used it and it was wonderful because the best gauge was the next day you'd look at the Amazon sales and something I reviewed would suddenly be up to number seven yeah. in sales. And you go, oh, yeah. you know, It's when you realize that reviews can have an effect. Yeah. Um, when you write a print review, it's impossible to know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like there's a whole, almost a whole genre of, of music reviews that have sprung up on, online around, like, you know, people, um, video reviews and things. Yeah. Of course, the difference is these had... Um, snippets of music in them so yeah. people could hear it yeah um do you have any uh memorable memorable reviews or albums that you remember just really blowing you away oh god there's stuff i reviewed um i got the mekons on uh national public radio and yeah. they're a band that started out in leeds and they, they were friends of mine still are um All sorts of things. I mean, I haven't done it in over 13 years now, so it's all a little misty. Mm, but you still kind of keep up with with music? or Just no, nowhere near as much. Mm. All the outlets that I wrote for have gone. Mm. Um, there's nothing. Print magazines have largely disappeared. I do stuff for one website. And I do some press releases for a record label and that's the extent of my music involvement these days yeah well so much of print i guess you think of all these like fanzines and and music magazines that were so kind of uh culturally big in yeah. in the 90s and the 80s yeah. and they have definitely kind of uh transitioned online i'd say oh yeah these kind um, of newer communities the the good thing was I had some very good editors who improved my writing so much. <laughs> and now, by and large, with people starting out in journalism, they're starting blogging, and there's nobody to edit them. There's no middleman, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I, I kind of feel sorry for them. And also, I was writing for outlets that paid. Mm. And try and find that now. Outside yeah. of a very few, it's impossible. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so you, you're in Seattle or you're in America for 30 years. And then in, in 2005, you come back to the UK. And a few years after that, you start publishing novels. And you said that you, you'd had a, a kind of a, an unpublished or a, a, an unfinished novel that you'd written in your early 20s. And it had always been at the back of your oh, mind. Oh, I had a number of unpublished novels yeah. six or <laughs> seven of them I, yeah. I mean the first was I started when I was still living in Leeds um, before I moved to the States and I'd, I'd been writing before then anyway um, but I started writing Leeds historical fiction when I was still in Seattle actually mm. um, I had an agent for my non-fiction I said, do you know any uh, fiction agents? And she put me on to somebody over here, and I was coming over, so we met up. And I'm not going to give you the whole story because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's messy. But in the end, um, I had this book that she decided not to take, and I just hung on to it for a while, and I came across something... I was living down in, in Dromfield in uh, northeast Derbyshire, which is kind of midway between Sheffield and Chesterfield, mm -hmm. right on the edge of the Peak District. And I, I came across a book in the uh, local library, some historical fiction, and I thought, hmm, okay, I don't know this publisher. Uh, so I sent, contacted them. And long story short, they uh, published the first book, The Broken Token, and at which point they, Lynn, the woman who ran it, um, sold out to Seven House, who have been my publishers since. Um, and Lynn is now my, apart from being a really good friend, is my editor for the, all the books. So it was serendipity in a way. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with Seven House. They've been very good to me and um, they've, my books all make money. Yeah. So I, I guess it's, you know, mutually beneficial. And they're uh, local? They're uh, Yorkshire-based? No, no, no. Right? Seven House is down in London. Oh, okay. Well, now they're part of Canongate, so they're up in... Yeah. But their office is down in London. Okay. But they're still, you know, Canongate's still an indie. Yeah. And, and Seven House was an indie, so that I like a lot. Yeah. Um, well, you have a kind of... I feel like there's a bit of a renaissance of indie... Yeah. Small publishing houses uh, recently, and and a particular focus on on northern fiction as yeah. well. There's the I think it's the Northern Fiction Alliance, and yeah, oh, loads yeah, of yeah, small yeah. presses that have got kind of you know they've they've had books that have won national attention, which is really great. I think because um, uh, publishing is so so London centric. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. But so Leeds is really really important in your work and you've grown up in Leeds obviously and you've lived here for for many years now um and you I, I think when we talked last you said that um historical veracity was very important to you and you've done so much research yeah almost except when you have like I, I think of like a, a taxi driver's map the knowledge of, oh I of do London in streets. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you've got kind of an uh, an historical map of Leeds can you tell me a bit about your your research process and what kind of sources and documents you're drawn to? Well, started really when um, when I was still in the States. 
when I come back to see my parents every year, I pick up some, this was in the 90s, I, I pick up whatever Leeds history books I, I found at uh, Borders or I think Austics might still have been going at that point. Um, and then when eBay came along, there was an opportunity to get all these older books. Cost a fortune in postage to have them sent to the States. Um, but really worthwhile. And that built my knowledge of Leeds. And um, similarly, when I was back, I'd be walking around and taking it all in. And I'd, I'd, when I lived here, I worked in what you might call old Leeds. It was um, St. James's, mm -hmm. the part that's now the Thackeray, which I didn't realize it when I worked there, was originally the workhouse. Um, so there's this connection mm. to, to older Leeds. Um, and it, it's something I feel, Leeds is something I feel in my DNA. I feel it through the soles of my feet. Mm. Um, I can only write about places where I've lived. Yeah. I've written about Chesterfield. I've, um, in fact, there's going to be a murder mystery musical based on the first of my Crooked Spire series next year. Wow. Yeah, I, I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose that's combining your kind of musical... Well, no, it's not. I have no. nothing to do with it. Oh, I see. Uh, it's just somebody who wanted the rights. I'm going, okay, yeah, yeah sure. Very go, exciting. Go for it. I imagine that will be quite strange to see your work performed or, or adapted without any creative input yeah, from yeah, you, really. Yeah. And I, I just said, go for it. I, I, I want to step back from it and just yeah. be an audience. But um, so I'd, I've learned about Leeds in different eras as well. Um, I have a ton of reference books. And of course, there's the uh, Thorsby stuff. Yeah. Well, you sound like you have, I guess, from uh, your time in America as well, spent a lot of time in libraries yeah. researching. Yeah. And I love researching. Mm. I love finding out new things. Um, I have a pair of books set in the 1950s. And to discover that Leeds had a pretty famous jazz club at Studio 20 mm. on New Brigger, I was just like, oh, wow. And I planned on having a jazz club in the book anyway, but to find out there was one just made it all magical. Yeah. Um, and finding out about the Leeds gas strike of 1890 was the spark for the Tom Harper series. Yeah. Um, I'd already written about Annabelle, his wife, although she wasn't his wife at the time than a short story about it. And there was something she just would not let me go. Um, and when I settled down to, to write Gods of Gold, as it came to be called, it was as if she just came up and said, shove over. And this around. is Annabelle Harper, Annabelle, yeah, who is, yeah. is Tom Harper's wife. And she yeah. was, I think, a real person, was no, she? No, no, no. she, she wasn't. wasn't. Okay, no, no. all right, I see. Um, no, in some ways... I. Well, she's totally real to me, but um, it was as if she said, shove over, yeah. let me help. I was there. And she took over the series. She still does. Um, there was one book, The Tin God, which was largely 
She was a central character running to be a poor law guardian. So that brought in the workhouse. And they were living down in Sheepska, um, running the Victoria pub. The building is still there, even if the pub isn't. My great-grandfather ran that pub from the 1920s into the 1940s. My dad, who lived at, grew up in Cross Green, used to walk over in the summer and go upstairs up to the top floor where the family lived so he could practice the piano for hours on end. You know, th this is these books are, are my history too, if you, mm. if you like. It's all intertwined. Yeah, well, um, it goes back to, I guess, that, that idea that so much of creative work comes from your own, you know, your own life and your own history and things that you're interested in and you have to have a personal connection yeah, to yeah. things. And, you, and, and yeah, the idea that coincidence and random serendipity can kind of inspire you. You talked about, I think you were doing some research into Sheepscar and found a picture of your uncle, I think. Uh, well, it were... was, no, it was, um, I was doing... I wrote, a, I've written a history of Sheepsco, which is, as far as I'm aware, the only one that's been done. It's, it's not huge. Um, mm. But over at Abbey House Museum, they took a look to see what they had and brought something up. I said, wait a minute, can I see that? And it was an invoice from my great, great, great uncle, George Nixon, who was a painter and decorator. Very elaborate invoice, nicely printed. Um, he had his. He lived on the bottom of Meanwood Road, and had his premises in Rockley Hall Yard, just off the hedgerow. And it was <laughs> that just stunned me to be able to hold this thing as his signature on it that was just looked like my father's signature. Mm. That is. A physical connection to history, um, which I'd never expected. Yeah, and in a way, I suppose your novels are kind of take that and and try and make it even well, in some ways more real, in some ways a kind of you know a story. I, but I want people to feel as if they've walked around Leeds, as if they've heard everything, smelt what's going on. Um, that that's very important to me. Yeah. And I, on my website, my blog, I actually cover Leeds history a lot more. I'm doing a, a small series now on forgotten women of Leeds. Mm. Um, I just published a piece today on Alice, uh, on Anne Carr, who's a the female revivalist preacher who was here in the 1820s. And I did uh, something on Alice Mann, who was a radical bookseller and printer, um, 1820s to 1840s. So... You've, you Well, you helped um, uh, organise an exhibition for Leeds City Libraries, I think, called The the Vote Before the Vote, which was about the history of women's yeah. suffrage in Leeds. That sounds really interesting. Can you, yeah, tell me a bit about that? Well, I, I, I worked... Well, I assisted... Uh, a woman called Vine Pemberton Joss, who's a, a suffrage historian. She's given talks here. Um, and it was all 19th century, up to pretty much up to the formation of the WSPU. 
What's that? Sorry. Uh, Women's Political and Social Union. That's the suffragettes. Okay. The suffragists predated them. The, su- the, the suffragists were more moderate. Um, and in fact, Isabella Ford, who was the head of it in Leeds, um, was nationally known. She was a Quaker, a pacifist, um, organized trade unions. She was a friend of Tom Maguire, who organized the gas strike here and a, um, a labor strike and was important in the founding of the Independent Labor Party. Leeds has this very radical history, and it goes back to the 1820s. Mm. A lot of people aren't really aware of yeah. that. Um, but yeah, this would various women, mostly very middle class. And But I'm very proud of this. One of the boards in there was about Annabelle running to be uh, a Paul or Guardian. So I kind of surreptitiously wrote her into history. <laughs> um, in fact, somebody on one Facebook page just this week put up something, um, a poster, a mock poster I'd done for her candidacy. Yeah. With a a photo of her next to her next to it, which was taken from the cover of the book of the Tin God, and, and someone thought it was a real person. Well, I mean, I actually was a bit confused because I'd, I'd done a bit of research into that exhibition and I... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, wow, how great. You yeah. Know, I love this. Um, conflating history and fiction. Yeah, and Annabelle it's... Harper was almost a real historical yeah, character because, in my Yeah, because she is real to me. So yeah, it's, um... yeah. Well, I mean, also when you read books, I, I don't know about you, but definitely my uh, kind of, you know, the, uh, the fictional characters that have really stuck out to me seem uh, as real as you know, like a celebrity or someone I've never met. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess the idea of of thinking about someone as as their, um, I don't know, as, as not a real person or writing about someone who is an historical character is maybe, I guess, similar in a way to, to the mythologizing that you do for yeah. celebrities in a biography that you've, you've never met or, or talked to them before. I've, I've used real people in the... Uh, Tom Harper series, um, Tom McGuire, Isabella Ford, um, one or two others. And in the Simon Westow series, which is, he's a thief taker here in the 1820s, there are one or two, there's William Hay, the surgeon who helped uh, found the infirmary. Um, George Moody, who was the editor of the uh, Leeds Intelligencer, uh, and then was fired and tried to start his own paper, which didn't work, and he became a printer. Yeah. Um, so you, there's a few little characters like that. And I don't necessarily publicize it. Yeah. So, well, I suppose in a way it doesn't matter, and it's, it's interesting to be able to, uh, that you can't tell who's real and who's not. Yeah, and I yeah. think with, with fiction, definitely it's, I mean, history is a, a separate matter, but with fiction, it's not necessarily, is it real or is it true, but is there, is there yeah, truth in exactly, it? exactly, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, okay, well, yeah, so I guess um, in a similar similar way, my next question is what makes something Leeds for you? And is can you even describe what makes something Leeds? Can you sum up the spirit of the city or, or is it uh, elusive and indefinable? I've been trying to do that since I started writing fiction. <laughs> um, 
We're a bullshit bunch of bastards. Um, but what separates Leeds from the rest of Yorkshire? What separates Yorkshire from Lancashire? There have been endless discussions over the centuries about that. Yeah. Wars fought over it. <laughs> um, I wish I had the answer. I, yeah. I, I, I really don't. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting having... I've, I've only I've lived in Leeds for not even a year yet, and I think that there is something so... Uh, indescribable, but so kind of real about about Yorkshire and about Leeds that you can't, yeah. you, know, you can never put your finger on, but it's there. And and I also think Leeds has such a a strong uh, kind of independent spirit in a way that that you know it means that you can't just pin it down to to one thing because there's such a diversity of, of voices and people and and oh things. yeah, and it's it's like everywhere else, it's a city of immigrants. Mm. You know, you had the uh, Irish coming here, the 1830s onwards. Um, the Jews from Eastern Europe, from the 1880s up to towards the First World War, another wave of Irish in the 1950s, and um, obviously the West Indians post Windrush, um, South Asians, 1960s. So it's very much a city of immigrants and. Something you notice now, I'm sure it's true of all cities, is that they they start close to the centre. Mm -hmm. And then as they make money, they move out. They spread out to the suburbs. Um, And you see this with with wave after wave of immigration. And I think overall, hopefully, Leeds has always been very welcoming. Um, I don't know if that's the case and quite honestly being white and male I'm too privileged to perhaps have the right opinion about that Mm. Um, but I would like to think so Yeah. certainly I I think in the last 10-20 years we've become so much more aware of things. Certainly, and I think even if there are uh, histories of, of, of racism, and, and I'm thinking of, we had Emily Zobel Marshall on, on the podcast the other day, and she is, works with the David Oluwale. Of course, yeah. Uh, remember David Oluwale charity, who and he was a, an immigrant who was murdered by police officers, basically. Yeah. Um, but their, that whole charity exists to kind of encourage um thinking about social justice and 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 racism and you know working to kind of avoid those things in the future so that you know even when there are histories of this kind of like prejudice against immigrants they you know definitely now there's more awareness and and I think so yeah yeah um and do you i mean what do you find that the city adds to your writing um, that it that that you didn't kind of get in America or you didn't get in in other places necessarily. I guess there's something about having a, a personal connection and having grown up. And you, oh, like there's say, definitely you know, that. Your grandfather worked in the yeah, Victoria pub, and but more than that, 
there's a history, the roots of Leeds go deep. I mean, my, my first member of my family to arrive in Leeds came from West Yorkshire, uh, East Yorkshire, from Malton, in about 1825. Um, and he set up as a butcher on Timble Bridge. So, you know, I have roots here, and on the other side of my family, it goes back just as far. Mm. Um, but you can go down to Leeds Parish Church, Leeds Minster, whatever you want to call it. Take a look at the, at the, the Leeds Cross in there that's assembled from five different crosses that used to stand outside the church in Saxon times. Um, one of them, part of them, is uh, an image carved image of Wayland the Smith, which is one of the oldest English stories. And it's a pagan story. Um, you're talking, you know, really pre-Christian roots there. Mixed in. Um, and just so much of it. We're very much an industrial city. It was industry that made Leeds, mm. for better or worse. Um, but even before that, there was a lot here. Um, you're just hard-pressed to find architectural traces of, um, of it. There's loads of folklore as well, Yorkshire folklore, which there's actually there's an amazing book in here uh, in the librarian's office just down there that um, was, I think it was like, presented to a... A lord or something, but it's uh, all these amazing old Yorkshire folk tales. It's a lot of Yorkshire folk tales, but very few Leeds specific. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's true. That's true. You, you'd be lucky to find a handful. I'm, I found one about, um, I think it was Robin Hood in uh, at Kirkstall Abbey the yeah, other day, <laughs> which was great because uh, I live nearby there, so I can just go and I wandered around and say, oh, Robin Hood. Um, but yeah, well, and and I guess the kind of the uh, industry was is part of the reason why the library exists because it was the the growing industry, well, the growing I mean, middle class. The, the, this it, this library predates the industrial revolution. Yeah, and uh, it was a wonderful subscription library because there was yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I think it was off the back of uh, the world trade. Um, oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. That it kind of that was how people. How the middle classes made them. Yeah, money. exactly. And there was this kind of explosion in, in trade, and Leeds really benefited from that. And that's why why yeah. the library was founded, I guess. Off topic. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but do you, I mean, do you find that you're drawn to, to certain eras when you research or, or write? Because your, um, your, your Tom Harper series is set in uh, kind of turn of the century or, or just pre war, isn't it? It's, well, it starts off in Victorian times. And yeah. Um, Brass Lives is 1913. The next book, which is out next year, is 1917. And I'm just working on the one after that, which is 1920. Um, that took on more of a life of its own, it becomes a chronicle, the crime books, but I think they've become a chronicle of a family, but also of the changes in Leeds over that period from Victorian to the Edwardian era and then into the Georges really so it's um, uh, 
the, you know, the changes post World War One, which were huge. Um, it was never in, originally intended that way, but that, that that's how it's happened. Um, and it's interesting because I had always said I will never write a Victorian crime novel. Oops, <laughs> you know I've published nine of them now, so yeah, uh, gone back past that. But yeah, it, it's. Um, the things that spark me, I guess, really. Um, the Richard Nottingham books set in the 1730s were in part because I was fascinated by the the fact that the people getting rich off the wall trade here uh, and there were still a vast number of people who were poor, so you have that disparity which creates that tension. Yeah. And also, nobody had been writing about historical leads and there's very little in that era um, and the Simon Westar books set in the 1820s they, they pretty much split the difference between Richard Nottingham and Tom Harper but they're very industrial unregulated leads and still massively growing um, but it's there are a kind of regency, but this is the regency of the working class mostly, which mm. people don't deal with. Well, you don't fiction. often hear about because it doesn't. No. Uh, it doesn't translate to it's TV, not, I guess, because no, they don't it, have it, all you know, it, it, It's not Jane Austen. It's not Georgette Hyatt. Yeah, it, it's um, the term I like to use is regency noir, because mm. they're they are very dark books. They're very angry books, um, quite deliberately so. And they're quite violent books as well, certainly compared to the others. Mm. So, do you? I mean, do you still see that kind of uh, underbelly in, in Leeds today? Or, and have you have you noticed how Leeds has changed since you've since you've lived here? What are kind of some of the differences? I'm not sure I'm out and about enough to really judge what it's <laughs> like. Whether there's an underbelly now? Yeah, there always has been. There always will be. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not attracted to becoming involved in it. So. <laughs> no. no, but do you? I mean, have you noticed that the the city has has changed much? Become horribly gentrified. Yeah. Um, there's a development going up called Soyo, stands for South of York Road to apartment blocks on Quarry Hill, and it's kind of like. The name Quarry Hill isn't good enough for you. You've got to use this horrific acronym. Um, you're taking, you're coming in, and you're take, you're trying to take away our history. Yeah, you know, there'll be a Soyo house. I'm, I'm one of a number of people who are very angry at that. Mm. Um, we're being culturally appropriated, all for the sake of a few pounds in someone's pocket. Mm. any wonder people are angry um, well I suppose that's where the importance of, of, of remembering and revisiting the history yeah, of Leeds yeah. comes in in a way and, and that's I mean, probably you, why I mean why your novels are so kind of have done so well is that people especially people from Yorkshire like to they, they need that history or they, they are really drawn to that history 
Well, if you don't know where you've come from, how can you know where you're going? Yeah, exactly. As I said, you've, 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 well, we've, you've been with Tom Harper for nine books now. Do you ever find uh, elements of yourself and your own personality leaking into your characters? We talk about you've, you've been inspired <laughs> by... <laughs> By events and people in your life, but does, um, do you do you your your own does your own personality ever kind of leak into your characters? There are bits of me that find my way into all my characters. I, I think that's inevitable for any writer. Um, I can't necessarily pick them out. Obviously, Richard Nottingham, for example, is very much this straight arrow uh, guy. He he's kind of the equivalent of the. Uh, the sheriff in a western in a lot of ways yeah um um he's perhaps the person i would like to be uh very idealized tom harper i'm sure that i'm in there but i'm not sure where the simon Westow books there's a lot of anger in there and yeah yeah i have a lot of anger in me so it's a, it's more just a way of getting it out um, yeah um than anything else, rather than, I, I couldn't say, oh, that bit's definitely me, that bit's definitely me. Um, it's, it's more generalised than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose all kind of creative work is, uh, in a way, um, a, a way of working through your own feelings. And yeah, if you feel angry, I guess the best thing to do with that is make some art with it. I've certainly never based a character on someone I know. Yeah. I, I, I read about writers doing that a lot, and... Just never been me. Would you ever so. go uh, for an autobiography? Do you think <laughs> at some point <laughs> your memoirs will be coming out? Um, so you recently became the first ever writer in residence for the Abbey House Museum. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the museum and the work that you've been doing with them? Well... <clears throat> came about more initially as a joke than anything else on Twitter. <laughs> and I, I'd done work with Abbey House before. Um, and then they kind of suggested it, and I'm like, yes, I'd love to. You know, this is an honour. It's great. Um, and I'm amazed at some of the things that just writing novels have led to, like doing the exhibition at Leeds Libraries. That was a high point for me. You know, that, I'm getting... I'm getting involved in proper Leeds history. I love that. Mm. Um, and, and this is a great opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, we agreed just probably maybe a week before the first lockdown. So there was never even the chance to discuss quite what it could be. Mm. <clears throat> I did a few things for them online <clears throat> and I just had a meeting a week ago to see about some possible things and there are two possible things that um, we talked about uh, wait and see if they come to fruition one is actually taking this idea of forgotten women of Leeds and, and doing something more with it because they had a, an exhibition called a woman's place a couple of years ago and the two things would feed together. And the other is um, a folk song and folk tales of Leeds, um, which again is something I'm doing 
on my blog, we had Frank Kidson, who lived here, who was one of the early uh, folk song collectors of Victorian times. Um, I, I had him as a character in one of my novels, actually. Yeah. Because um, he's too good not to, and I love folk music. Yeah. It's, um, so seeing where that goes, because there's some of Kidson's stuff in uh, the Central Library. This collection of broadside ballads, some of which mention Leeds. And again, Leeds is poorly served by folk song. Yeah. When you consider that there's a lot of industrial folk song in Lancashire, particularly Manchester, reams of it, you could lose yourself in it. But there's very little here. Yeah. And um, so I've been doing a bit of research about that. And again, it's. it's Stuff that fascinates me, and it perhaps gives a a forum for to for it to be more widely known. Yeah, well, I mean, I since I've been here, I've, I've kind of dipped my toes a tiny bit into Yorkshire uh, folk tales, and they I think they're fantastic. Uh, well, I mean, that leads me on to actually uh, to ask you about the Leeds Library. What your what your connection with it is, what your relationship with it is, uh, how long have you been a member? Well. I've been a member for a few years now since I could afford it. Um, I've wanted to be a member much longer than that. I've done research down here before that. Supposedly, and I, I, from what I understand, the records from the several decades before are lost, but my father was a member here for a while, mm. um, which I could well believe. Um and that's a sort of an inspiration for me to want to do it. Because apart from being a musician, my father was a writer as well. He had a couple of television plays on in the 70s. Yeah. So I'm following in his footsteps in more ways than I would perhaps want. <laughs> um, and this is just another way of doing it. Yeah. And to be... To be Mention uh, something in the uh, the 250th anniversary book. I was just like, wow. Yeah. I, it all helps me feel like I'm part of the fabric of Leeds. You know, this is an institution. I'm I'm keep, I'm, I'm helping it keep going, and I'm proud to be able to do that. Yeah. To be to be one tiny tiny little part of something that. Involved Joseph Priestley, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, um, well, you seem really like a like an author whose work is so uh, yeah enmeshed in in real life, and that kind of boundary between fiction and real life is constantly being kind of tested and blurred, and one feeds into the other, um, which is I think what makes your work really interesting. Well, I I write a lot about working class people. Mm. Um, because there are so many people who've lived and died without any commemoration at all. And it, it, it's, it's a way to have them remembered. There are ancestors of mine who are buried in unmarked graves at Beckett Street Cemetery. It's one 
older relative of mine who's one name on a, a guinea grave. Um, so I understand what that's like. And, and I, I just want to kind of remember these people in some way mm. or another. And maybe make other people who read the books remember them. Yeah. And that's perhaps the best thing I can do. Yeah. And write an entertaining story as yeah. well. Yeah. I think that's so important. And we've, uh, I think we've talked on this podcast with several people how, about how local history is is kind of, it's not so glamorous as, you know, uh, uh, a world war, but it's it, people are really connected to it and that's why it's important to remember. And, it, and it, it makes your experience of living in a place so much the more yeah. rich and, and, yeah. and fulfilling because you, you feel connected. But it's the ordinary people. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones who, who made this place what it is. Yeah. The ones who worked the looms, the, the, the ones who went down in the bell pits off uh, Duncan Street and mined the coal, and um, the ones whose bodies were buried at, uh, in the graveyard at Ebenezer Chapel, where there's now... Victoria Square. Yeah, and I suppose it is, you know, it's obviously, it's important to learn your kings and queens and, you know, Waterloo and blah, 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 these big kind of historical events, but you lose some of the kind of um, uh, tangibility of history when you... You're when not you, seeing the wood for the trees. Exactly, and you can't fit yourself into that narrative. Yeah, um, yeah. Really. You know, the vast majority of us have more to do with um, the people working... The looms. Exactly. I wouldn't have been a king or queen. I would have been yeah. a yeah, exactly. <laughs> factory worker. You know, we're not aristocracy. We're not rich. Yeah. Um, and whilst we might, those are the people we know about, maybe we need to look deeper. Yeah. Um, I guess my final question is, what are you working on at the moment? Do you have any projects you'd like to tell yes. us about? Or? Yes, I do. I've actually just finished the publisher's edit on a book called Blood Covenant, which is coming out in December. It's the fourth Simon Westow book. Um, I'm not going to say too much more about that, other than I'd started it right before lockdown first lockdown last year and um, it requires it's a book that requires a lot of anger mm. and with lockdown and all the deaths I couldn't find that so I, I put that aside and moved on to Tom Harper book which is coming out next summer but around autumn I guess it was I was reading all about how incompetent, how corrupt government has been mm. on all this. And the anger just flooded back. And I ended up starting the book all over again. It was, it's not the book it originally was, it's actually far angrier than that. But um, yeah, and I just recently finished another Simon Westow book, which hasn't even gone off to the publisher yet. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I'm fascinated with the character of Jane in those books. She's 
to me, one of the best characters who's come to me. Yeah. Um, but And I'm now on the 11th Tom Harper book, which will actually be the last in the series. It's at 1920. Okay. So. And, and for anyone who's interested in the Tom Harper books, the ninth one has just been published, Brass Lives. Yes. Which I've seen, I have a couple of chapters in and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> your, your proof that you sent me. Um, but I actually, yeah, it's interesting that you talk about anger because you don't, I mean, I guess we see history and, you know, not so much fiction, but history is definitely kind of a, a, a reserved uh, realm, free from emotion and, you know, it's all names and dates. But actually being angry about history reminds us that, you know, history is happening all around us and it's, you know, in the present and we're not kind of passive readers. We are, we're part of the fabric of, of where we live. And yeah, and... Um- you read statistics, <clears throat> reports of factory abuse of children. Mm. Um, Simon Westow has experienced that growing up when he was in the workhouse and working in the, the mills until he walked away from that. Um, so that at the start of the Blood Covenant, Dr. Hay from the infirmary comes to him and has had two children come in. Westow has given evidence a a few years before to a commission investigating what happened with with children, child labour. These children have been abused in the factories to the extent that they die. Mm. And this just sparks memories, sparks anger and a desire to get some justice for them, which is the starting point of of the book. So it's very personal, but history is personal. It yeah. happens to people. Yeah. You know, it's not just reading an event, reading a report. The people behind this. Exactly. And 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 people happen to history as well. I think it's yeah. important to remember that we all are living in the world and we have, you know, yeah. we have um an effect on it uh, yeah and i think we can get a bit lost in in how big everything is sometimes. oh absolutely yes i agree with that yeah yes. wow well chris thank you so much well thank you for having me for being on the podcast i've really enjoyed talking to you it's been really fascinating <laughs> <laughs> um yeah uh brass lives out now and look out for future projects uh, yeah the um, final tom harper but well, that's a long way off, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only about 15,000 words into it, so there's a long way to go. Well, I'm sure with your uh, ability to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm in no rush. You're disciplined. time over this. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Wow, fantastic. Well, thank you. Cheers. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at The Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.